This morning's title to the sermon is Look to Christ. Look to Christ. John chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 15. Here's what the apostle John writes. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning and just pray that you would enlighten this text and grab our hearts, God, and help us to learn and understand what you want us to from this continued teaching from the Lord Jesus to Nicodemus. God, I pray that this morning we would be moved to look to Christ and realize that without Christ we're hopeless, that without Christ we have no ability to have true joy and true satisfaction, that without Christ there's no heaven for us. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would awaken our senses to what you're teaching us here in this text as we desire to look to Christ today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, just outside of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, is a theme park called Dollywood. And as you may have imagined or know, that is owned by country music legend Dolly Parton. And besides being a singer and a theme park owner, Dolly Parton also is an author. And her autobiography is entitled, Dolly, My Life and Other Unfinished Business. No, I haven't read the book. But on the back of that book, there's a quote that uh, I want to make mention of. She says this, quote, I am not a very religious person, although I grew up with a very religious background. And she, in the book, talks about how her dad was a pastor. Dolly states this, quote, Let every man seek his own salvation is one of my favorite scriptures. Well, how about that? I mean, I would say that by all indications, Dolly Parton may be a gifted singer and an actress and a business person, but she certainly is an extremely poor theologian. And she certainly has a bad memory if she thinks that's a verse in the Bible, because nowhere in the Bible does it say, let every man seek his own salvation, right? We know salvation is all about us looking to Christ by us looking to him. And so let me share with you maybe the perspective of another very well-known public figure, though he's been dead for over a hundred years. If I were to ask a music fan who is the king of music, they may tell you Elvis Presley or Michael Jackson or Justin Bieber. It's not Justin Bieber, all right? So if you were to ask a sports fan who is the king of swing, hopefully they would know that's Babe Ruth. If you were to ask a pastor... And I would say half of the Christians in America, who was the prince of preachers, hopefully you would know that, of course, is Charles Spurgeon. And before anybody ever heard the term megachurch, Charles Spurgeon pastored one. For many years, he was the pastor of Metropolitan Baptist Church in London, England. People had to get tickets two to three weeks before the service they wanted to attend just to get into the auditorium. He was an anomaly, right? He had a way with words. He was completely dependent on the Spirit of God. People say that he would go into the pulpit with an index card with just a couple of notes written out. And yet his sermons were so popular and so wanted that they were printed in major papers all around the world. And it was Charles Spurgeon who had a huge impact on the church even today as we know it. And I want to tell you the experience about how Charles Spurgeon came to be born again. As a young man, he was deeply convicted of his sin, but he did not know how to be forgiven of his sin. And so he began to go to different churches and to listen to what pastors had to say. And he said he heard a lot of moral sermons and a lot of fine sermons on doing good and living right. But by his own admission, he said he never really quite heard the gospel message proclaimed with power. One snowy Sunday evening, he was going to a particular church, but it snowed so heavily 
that weekend that he couldn't get to the church he was going. And so he was walking along the streets of London and he came to a pretty obscure street and began to walk down and he saw a chapel that he had never noticed before. And it was this, this primitive Methodist chapel. And so he went into the chapel and sat down and there were only a few people there that Sunday evening and there was not a, a pastor there that night. Apparently, I don't know if they had a rotation of pastors or he just didn't make it because of the snow. And so after sitting there for a while, Charles Spurgeon got up and he began to leave the building. And then all of a sudden, there was a very thin-looking man who happened to be a deacon in that church who got up, grabbed his Bible, and walked to the pulpit. And as he got into the pulpit, he opened the Bible to Isaiah 45, verse 22, where it says, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, where I am God, and there is no other. He then looked at Charles Spurgeon and simply said, Young man, you are in trouble and you will never get out of it unless you look to Jesus Christ. The old Baptist deacon continued to say, Look, 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 it's only look. And Spurgeon said that at that exact moment, he finally saw the way of salvation. It wasn't by his own good works. It wasn't by his own good effort. It was simply by looking to Christ. And he gives the testimony that in that moment he was radically saved as he understood it was about faith alone in Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the same must happen to you. The same must happen to you. You don't have the right to come up with a religion of your own making and paraphrase verses of Scripture that aren't even there, like Dolly Parton, right? But you have a responsibility to look to the Word of God, to look to the testimony of Christ, and to be saved. Not, not that that's your responsibility, but you have a responsibility to come to Christ. And Christ must draw you. He must bring you. He must cause you to be born again. We're commanded to look to Him throughout Scripture. And this morning, I want to just give you uh, four headings today, four different headings that will help remind us that we are to look to Christ. Number one, spiritual understanding, and this are in your outline there in your notes if you want to follow along, but spiritual understanding does not come from religious education. In fact, we're picking up, remember, in verse 9 and, and, and verse 10 here where it says uh, that, that uh, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. And so just to back up and give you a little information, uh, your next blank there just says the necessity of the new birth. And that's really what John 3, 1 through 8 is all about, this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was most likely on the Sanhedrin. He was a leader of the people of Israel. It is said by Josephus that he was the third richest man in town. Nicodemus was known as the teacher of Israel, and he comes to Jesus by night. Last week, we talked about how he was the first Nick at Night episode, right? He comes to Jesus at night. We don't know exactly uh, why he came. We don't know exactly what he was thinking when he decided to talk to Jesus at night. We emphasized last week what was important is that he came. He wanted to come to Christ, and he came to Christ, and they began to have this conversation. But before Nicodemus can even get his question out, we presume he came to Jesus to ask some questions but before he can get it out, because Jesus already knew what was within a man, he begins to answer the question that was never asked. And in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, undoubtedly, as a scholar, knew a lot about the kingdom of God. He had read his Old Testament. He had read through other famous Hebrew writings and various rabbis who probably waxed eloquently about the kingdom of God. But he didn't really understand the kingdom of God. He didn't know the kingdom of God as Christ knew it. And so that's why Christ says, Nicodemus, the only way you can ever get into the kingdom, it's not about your birth physically, it's about a new birth. It's about spiritually being reborn. And that's why he says you must be born again, or I told you last week that literally means to be born from above. It must be a work of the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus responds by saying, basically, how can that happen? How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And Jesus says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again by water and the Spirit, he cannot enter 
the kingdom of God. And I told you last week, I believe that word water is a reference to the word of God, being washed by the water of the word of God, being cleansed of our humanity and our human nature and through the word of God and the spirit of God, that together that brings new life, regeneration into the heart of the lost and damned sinner. It only comes through knowing Christ. And you can't know Christ unless He causes you to be born again, for it's in the passive tense, which means it's commanded, but you can't do it. God has to cause you to be born again. And we spent a little time talking last week again about how you can't cause your physical birth, which one of us among us decided the day you wanted to be born or how you wanted to be born. None of us, and just as we have no ability to contribute to our physical birth, we have no ability to contribute to our spiritual birth. It's birth from above. It's the birth of God. And so Jesus gives this beautiful illustration about being born. And then he gives a second illustration in verse 8 when he says it's about the wind. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And what he's saying is you can't cause someone to be born again. It's the Spirit of God. Just like the wind comes and goes and you can't see the wind but you just simply see the effect of the wind in the same way salvation. You can't see salvation with your natural eyes, but with your spiritual eyes, if the Spirit of God is blowing across your dead, stony heart, He can cause you to be born again. Regeneration is a work of God. It's a sovereign act when He puts the life of God into the soul of a man. It can only happen according to, again, God's power. And there's a third illustration that we're going to look at at the end of the sermon today about a third picture is about how Jesus would be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so three beautiful analogies given here in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth. You must be born again. And as we consider the necessity of the new birth, let's also, the next blank for you there, let's consider the nature of human thinking. The nature of human thinking. Obviously, Nicodemus is struggling to kind of keep up with Jesus and to pace himself with the spiritual truths that Jesus is giving. Jesus is being patient with Nicodemus in one sense, but in another sense, in verse 10, he chastises him and he says, Nicodemus, you're the teacher. You, you're the teacher of Israel. You should know this, and the fact that you don't know this exposes the fact that religious education does not bring you spiritual understanding. It must be a sovereign act of God. This is commonplace throughout even the Gospel of John as Jesus is interacting with various Jews and Pharisees, and they don't understand what he's saying. I've given you a whole list of cross-references there where Jesus says, destroy this temple in John 2.19, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews were confused. They thought he was talking about the physical temple where Jesus instead was talking about his body. Or how about in John chapter 4 verse 10 where the G- Jesus begins to speak to the Samaritan woman about living water and she thinks he's talking about the water in the well of Jacob. And so they have this discussion and Jesus is like, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about that water. If you drink that water, you'll thirst again. I'm talking to you about a water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. More confusion in John chapter 6 where Jesus speaks of himself as being the living bread that had come down from heaven. And the Jews think that he's talking about his physical body. In fact, they think somehow Jesus is commanding them to be cannibals. How can we eat the blood and the body of Christ? And he's referencing himself as a spiritual bread that has come down from heaven that must be ingested spiritually in order to have real life. In John chapter 7, Jesus speaks to the Jews of returning to heaven with his father, and the Jews think that he's talking about a game of hide and seek. If you read that whole passage in John 7, it's like, where is he going? Why does he say we can't go where he's going? Is he hiding from us? And then a little bit later in chapter 8, Jesus talks of going to be with his father in heaven, and the Jews think he's talking about committing suicide. They say, oh, well, maybe he's going to go kill himself. Maybe that's what he means, that we can't go be with him. In other words, they just didn't get it, right? Time and time and time again, Jesus is giving spiritual truth about a spiritual freedom, but the Jews didn't even know they were enslaved to their sin. They thought they were privileged because they were part of the ethnic chosen people of God. And in many ways... They were privileged. They had a privileged background. But that privileged background of being the chosen people of God did not mean that every Jew was born again. 
And Nicodemus precisely is coming to Christ at night to try to understand what's going on. And what we're learning here is that the nature of human thinking prevents us from spiritual truth. As long as we're approaching theology or the world from a human point of view, then we will never really see God. If God was, was so small that you could understand Him with your human reasoning, then He wouldn't be big enough for you to worship. Let me say that again. If God was small enough for you to grasp, then He wouldn't be big enough for you to worship. And so we can't grasp Him with our human ingenuity or intellect We must simply believe by faith. I mean, if you could figure out God on your own, then you wouldn't need divine grace. If you could get to heaven by climbing an intellectual ladder, then heaven would be filled with those who are intelligent. If you could get to heaven by climbing a financial ladder, then heaven would be filled with the rich. If you could get to heaven by climbing a good works ladder, then heaven would be filled with the self-righteous. But none of these ladders will ever get you to heaven. For heaven is filled with simple, poor, broken sinners who have not the ability to understand the things of God or to be born again apart from the Spirit of God that works through the Word of God to cause somebody to be born again. And so we see here, not only are we looking at what we're talking about here with this, the nature of a man here, the necessity of the new birth, the nature of human thinking, but your third blank under this point says this, the need for spiritual enlightenment. You have a need, I have a need. We cannot be saved without being spiritually enlightened. Nicodemus and all people have a great need to be enlightened. And really what we're talking about is 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. You understand that? The natural person, in their own thinking, they will never accept God. That's why people don't accept creation. That's why people don't expect, accept the virgin birth. That's why people don't accept uh, the, the resurrection. That's why people, the materialist, only see what they see, and they say, show me or I won't believe. And Christ ultimately shows us the ultimate sign is, again, resurrection. That's the only way that somebody could believe. But the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Which just simply means they're spiritually incapable of understanding apart from the sovereign work of God. If you're just left to your own devices, you would never accept things from the Spirit of God. And this is what Proverbs 4.19 talks about. The way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know where they are going or they stumble. Uh, This is talking about the blind leading the blind. They don't even know what's going on. And in a sense, Jesus is chastising or confronting and rebuking Nicodemus. In one sense, in verse 10 again, you ought to know this. And yet you're still in darkness. Nicodemus had a dark heart. We may not read of some immorality he was committing in the sense with money or with women or with power, but he's still committing intellectual sin and the self-righteousness of thinking somehow he's good enough to get into heaven on his own merit. But the fact is that he's darkened in his understanding and he's ignorant of what it means to really know God. And so we must repent of our blindness. You might be here today, and you identify with Nicodemus. You're a religious person, and you're not in any grave immoral sin as far as you understand your life to be. But you can still have sinned against God intellectually by rejecting Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And what I'm saying to you, it's not good for you to be an educated person, a religious person, a nice person, a moral person, if you're not being born again by the Spirit of God. And that's why I love Job chapter 34, verse 32 says, teach me what I do not see. Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may behold. And so here we have Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, a religious teacher who has been trained in the highest theological school of his day, but who has no spiritual discernment. The truth is, you could be a preacher and graduate with honors from seminary, but that doesn't make you born again. The fact is, someone could have a theological degree, and they could know all the things about finer points of theology and never have been taught by the Holy Spirit an enlightened understanding of what it means to be born again. The truth is there should be no dependence, 
that would ever be placed on any human learning. You must be taught from above. It must be the Holy Spirit. It must be the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to cause you to be born again. You can't do it. Nicodemus can't do it, and he's the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus can't understand it, and he was the brightest of all the minds in the theological circles that he ran in. So we must simply bow the knee to Christ and say, God, I need to be touched by you. God, I want to see, but I can't see. God, I want to know, but I don't know. God, I want to love, but I can't love. God, I'm broken. Fill me up. God, if you don't do it, I have no hope. That's the place and the position we must be. We must ask God to do a work that only He can do. You know, years ago, there was a man who visited a church in England where there happened to be many educated visitors there that day, and the attendees at the church were asked to sign in their name at the church ledger to register their visit. And there were scores of names they were entered into the, the book that day with a lot of credentials behind each signature. There were people there with their MDivs, Masters in Divinity, with their D-Mens, a doctorate in ministry. People there with their PhDs and their THDs, doctorates of philosophy and theology. And then this man came up to sign his name, and he simply signed his name, John Smith, B-A-M-A. And somebody asked him what that meant, B-A-M-A. M-A, and he said, that means I'm born again and marvelously altered. Born again and marvelously altered. And the truth is, that's the only credential that would ever get you into heaven. God doesn't care about your college degree. He doesn't care about your theological knowledge. He doesn't care about the fact you've been to seminary or to the master's university or the master's seminary or wherever you've been. What he cares about is, have you been born again? Have you been marvelously altered by the Spirit of God? Because if you haven't been, then you're no better than Nicodemus. If you haven't been marvelously altered by the Spirit of God, then there's no hope for you. You must come to Christ alone, by faith alone according to His grace alone, to the glory of God alone, by the Scripture alone, so that you may be born again. Now the second heading I want you to see this morning is this. Spiritual illumination can only come from receiving the testimony of Christ. It must come through Christ. There is salvation in no other name except Christ. You can't get there through any other learned religious teacher. You can't get there by any experience of your childhood. You can't get there through your, your pastor growing up. You can't get there through any other mediator. It must be Christ. It's Christ's testimony that He gives to us, which we must believe. Which is why verse 11 says, Truly, truly, now for the third time, Truly, truly means amen, amen, or the old King James, verily, verily. In other words, listen up to what I'm about to tell you. Jesus says, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. Your next blank here, I believe Jesus is speaking of divine reality. He's speaking of divine reality. Let me explain that. Uh, some would say, well, what is, he, what is he talking about here in verse 11? It seems like we're kind of moving into a new part of this conversation that he's having with Nicodemus. And Jesus says, we speak of what we know. And so the question we got to ask is obviously, well, who is we? Why does all this, if it's just Jesus and Nicodemus talking together at night, why all of a sudden does he start saying, well, we're going to speak to you about what we know? You and who, Jesus? Who are you talking about? And so some people say that the we refers to Jesus and John the Baptist, for they were the, the two best-known preachers and now in the New Testament that, that's, that's alive. Some would say the we that Jesus uses here refers to Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. Some would say that the we refers to Jesus and all who were born of the Spirit. Some would say that the, G, that the we refers to Jesus, the Son of God, and to uh, God the Father, and I think all of those are possible, I guess. But I think it means something else here. If I had to say what I think it means, I think that Jesus is simply using what's called the editorial we. He's responding in an argument. Nicodemus gives his argument in verse 2. Look back at verse 2 when it says, This man came to Jesus by night, so he's by himself. But he says, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher come from God. So he's kind of using Nicodemus' same way of reasoning or arguing. Nicodemus is saying, hey, we know you must be from God. And Jesus is like, hey, we know, and in verse 11 is where he says it, we, we know and we bear witness by what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In other words, Jesus is responding with this editorial we and saying that this is, this is the authority 
that I have to give to you. And I have this authority because I am from above. I have this authority because I was with God in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the only one who really knows and has the authority to bear witness by what he has seen because he was there in the beginning. So if Nicodemus has any argument to say, hey, we know you must be from God, Jesus is saying, no, I know, we know, we know, uh, and we bear witness to what we have seen because Jesus was there in the beginning. And then he says, but you don't receive my testimony. You don't receive my testimony, the next blank there, the Jews do not accept Jesus' testimony. Nicodemus didn't accept Jesus' testimony. Other Jews were not accepting Jesus' testimony. Look down at John 3, 31 and 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And so Jesus is saying simply, hey, you better listen to my testimony. That's all you need. You don't need, you don't need the Mishnah or the Talmud. You don't need another rabbi. You don't need more theological training. Listen to the testimony of God the Son, who says, I was there. We were there. This is the message I bring to you. You better be born again. And it's the testimony. It's all really based on the testimony of Christ, isn't it? Isn't our whole faith based on the testimony of Christ? If somehow Christ's testimony is not true, if he's not from the Father, if he's not from above, then why are we listening to him? But he is from the Father. He is God. He is from above. The testimony still means something in this world. In fact, this week, I I, I was in a car wreck. We were in a little fender bender. It was actually Josh Tejada and I leaving here on Thursday afternoon, and we're going around that sharp curve to kind of cross the railroad track, and a car crosses the lane and hits us right in the back of his truck scoots us over like this. We have a big dent in the back of our truck. We get out. They get out. Everybody's okay. I got just a little whiplash right here. Now I'm okay. Everybody, everybody's all right. <clears throat> so we're getting out and we're talking about it. And this poor little girl, uh, she may be here today. If you are, I'm glad you're here because I invited her to our church. But, uh, but she, she got out and, uh, you know, she was all right. And she, she, we were kind of, you know, working through the accident and what happened. And we called, called the, uh, the police. And basically a little bit later, the insurance call, company called me for a testimony. They needed to get my testimony that what had happened in the accident was true. And, and, and uh, so I gave it to them, and they better take my testimony being true, all right? But that, that's kind of what happens in the world that we live in, right? They have an eyewitness. We have a testimony. It's important. It holds up in a court of law. And Jesus doesn't need somebody to affirm his testimony, but he's just simply saying, hey, I'm giving you my testimony. You don't need any other authority. You don't need any other testimony from anyone else, and yet the unbelieving Jews were still rejecting Jesus. How about you this morning? Do you believe the testimony of Jesus Christ? Is that enough for you? Is it enough for you that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by me? Or are you looking for something else this morning to get you to heaven? Do you just believe in the testimony? All you've got to do is look to Christ. That's all you need. Look to Christ and believe in his testimony, and you can be saved. One other thought here about spiritual illumination coming from the testimony of Christ would be verse 12, and this is your next blank really, new birth starts simple but grows in its sophistication. New birth, being saved, it starts real simple, but it does grow in its sophistication. I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If Jesus had given Nicodemus the pure and unadulterated truth of the new birth with the analogies of being born physically and the earthly example of the wind blowing, then how would Nicodemus understand more complicated things about God if he's not willing to start where Jesus starts him? In other words, Jesus says, Do not marvel, verse 7, that I said to you, you must be born again. This was to be a simple truth. Now, more complex truths come through the Word of God. And that can be represented, and maybe you should turn here with me to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verse 11, talks about not only is there a simplicity to the truth of God, but there is a complexity to the things of God. And we learn this in Hebrews 5, 11 and following. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though it is by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey guys, by now you ought to be teachers. But you're not. You're still taking, the end of verse 12, you need milk, not solid food. Now there's nothing wrong with milk. He's just simply saying that after you take the milk, just like a baby has the simple food of milk, the baby then needs to grow and be nourished, needs to eat of, 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 of more substance than just milk. And that's what he's saying in verse 12, you, in Hebrews 5:12, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, is that a compliment for you to be unskilled in the word of righteousness? No, that's not a compliment. He's saying you ought to be skilled. But if you're still on the milk of the word, then, you're only, then you are unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature and for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, in the context, he's talking a little bit about recognizing false teachers. And the only way to recognize a false teacher is not only to have the milk of the word, but to have the meat of the word and be taught by the Spirit of God through the word of God that by constant use of your interpretive measures with the power of the Holy Spirit helping purify your mind and heart to the truth of his word, that you are able to distinguish that which is good from evil. And so I think that what's going on here is that Jesus is saying, not only, Nicodemus, do you need to come to me from these earthly analogies I've given you, but I've got more. I've got a whole lot more to give you, so you better get what I've given you already so we can go deeper. Is it possible? That's what Jesus is saying in the parable in Mark 4, 28, when he says, The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. In other words, he's saying part of being born again is about first you get a little bit, then after you're, you're saved, you get to understand a little more, and you understand a little more, and a little more. And so maybe we should ask the question, why is it that our progress sometimes is so slow in the things of God? Why is it uh, that, we, that we slow down in our growth? What is it that stagnates our growth in the knowledge of the truth? And is this not the answer that Jesus is giving in verse 12? Again, the earthly things are the things that are pertaining to the earthly realm. They are the things which have to do with our present life here on earth. They are the commands of God which are for the regulation of our daily walk down here. And if we don't believe these things and apply these simple earthly teachings of Christ, then we are not, uh, we are not fit to understand heavenly things. That God will not reveal to us the higher mysteries of the Spirit of heavenly things if we're not willing to accept the earthly things in which Jesus has taught us. That would be like Christ throwing his own pearls before the swine to take us into the highest of understanding. And again, I'm not talking about some type of Gnostic enlightenment where it gets really weird and outside of the Bible. All right? I'm just saying that there's some verses of the Bible, like John 3, 3, be born again. And there's other verses of the Bible that you know that you kind of have to wrestle with and kind of work on a little bit and kind of chew through it in order to understand what God's saying. It is because we are in no condition to receive more if we're not faithful with what we have. Have we paid so little attention to earthly things that Jesus hesitates to reveal to us more heavenly things? Is it possible that God gives greater knowledge to those who are more hungry and those who are more desperate to understand all that God has for them? I mean, if you're here today and you're like, all I want is the milk, I got it, I'm good. That's not healthy for you. It could be that you're saved and you're going to just kind of stay at that milk level Christian. That's possible. But I believe that God desires for you to grow and grow and grow and grow in your sanctification as you're digging into the Word of God and as the Spirit of God begins to illuminate your mind more and more to understand the deeper things of God. This is what God's called us to as a church. He's calling us deeper and deeper and deeper into the Word of God. And so will you receive Jesus' testimony or are you looking for another? This is the rebuke that he gives to Nicodemus and to any unbeliever. We must accept from Christ the simple things so that he can continue to reveal to us the more sophisticated things. And this leads us to the third heading, if we will. Number three, spiritual access into heaven is only possible because of Jesus. It's only possible because of Jesus. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. Okay, so what we're saying here, let's say it this way by filling in that next blank, only Jesus can claim to have ascended into heaven. Only Jesus can ultimately make that claim, I'm from heaven, I've descended to earth, I'm going back into heaven. Only Jesus has that passageway between heaven and earth. That's why Proverbs 30, verse 4 says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? And the rest of the verse goes on to talk about only Christ could do that. Or how about Acts 2, 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right feet. At my, at my right hand, excuse me. Uh, no one, the point being made here, no one has ascended into heaven and come down from heaven except Jesus. Not Enoch, not Moses, not Elijah, not even the Apostle Paul. You say, well, what about that time Apostle Paul talks about the third heaven? All right, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. Paul says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven heaven. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Nowhere does Paul claim to have literally ascended into heaven and descended from heaven. Instead, he says, I'm not sure what happened. I could have seen a vision I could have had a dream. It might have just been a revelation from God. All I know is that I've seen and learned a little bit more, but I don't really understand it because I can't even utter what I saw. So even if he did go into heaven and come back, which I would argue he didn't, but even if he did, the idea is he doesn't have anything to say to give further understanding of what really happened, which is the opposite of what happens in modern history. There have been a number of people who have claimed to have died and gone to heaven. You know, this has been popularized in the last decade or so here in our country. There's the book, Become Movie, Heaven is for Real, which talks about Colton Burpo at age four, who almost died during a ruptured appendix surgery. Colton claims that he left his body and went into heaven. Then there's the book in the movie, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven, with Don Piper, a Baptist pastor who said he died in a car wreck and went up into heaven for 90 minutes. Numerous other people have claimed to have spent time in the afterlife, including Mary Baxter, who claimed that she went to heaven and hell, Betty Malls, Roberts Lairdon, Jesse Duplantis, Kenneth Hagen, Richard Ebby, and Todd Bentley. There's a problem with all these people saying and giving a testimony that they've been to heaven and back. And the logical problem is simply this. All of their testimonies contradict each other. You can listen to one, listen to the other, and it only takes a cursory reading of their stories to realize that they all contradict each other and even contradict themselves. Colton Burpo reports that everyone in heaven, even God himself, has wings. Piper says that many people in heaven are there, but nobody has wings. Some report that heaven is completely urban, whereas Duplantis says that he saw homes out in the country. Some say they saw God on his throne. Others said they didn't see him at all. Some, like Don Piper, can't remember whether they saw him or not. Colton claims that those in heaven show no signs of age, and yet Piper claims that his grandfather still had white hair. Somebody saw Jesus on a rainbow horse. Somebody said uh, the Holy Spirit is like a blue fog. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Are you believing this? Are are you really going to believe the testimony? By which, by the way, the little boy, Colton Burpo, later came out and his father said the whole thing was a hoax. The whole thing was a hoax in order to get a contract for a book and for a movie. It's, it's, It's just not right. I think it's not right for... The logical reason, if it doesn't make sense and that their stories don't match up, but the theological reason is Jesus says, hey, look, nobody comes up and comes down. That just doesn't happen. If you see it happening in Scripture, it's either a parable, like Luke 16, right, the rich man and Lazarus, but, but it's, there's never true access in and out of heaven, which what I think Jesus is really saying here, your next blank, only Jesus can bring the truth of heaven. Really, what Jesus is doing is playing his authority card here that because I'm from heaven and I've descended from heaven and going back to heaven, I have the authority to bring the truth of the word of God because John 1.18 says no one has ever seen God 
except Jesus. John 6.33, it's only he who has come down from heaven. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven. John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. John 6.62, the Son of Man ascended to where he was before. Only Christ has the right. No person has the authority of Christ because no person has the access Christ has had. Only Jesus, your next blank, can provide access into heaven. Only Christ, because he's been there. He's our high priest. He's gone in before us. And there's salvation in no one else. One last picture of salvation given here in verse 14. Remember, the first picture was birth. The second picture was the wind blowing. And now the third picture, I told you, was about looking to Christ of the cross. And so here's number four. Spiritual life can only come to those who look to who? Who look to Christ. Not looking to someone else's testimony, looking to Christ's testimony. Not looking at your works, but looking to Christ. And then Jesus himself says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Your next blank says, the bronze serpent on the pole. You've got to turn here with me to Numbers chapter 21 to see this amazing story that you'll remember when you see it, that Christ brings into view so that Nicodemus can see him for who he really is. Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. You guessed it, another story about the Israelites becoming complainers about how things aren't going their way. Verse 5, and these people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness for there's no food? That's a lie. God provided manna and quail. There's no water. That's a lie. Moses struck the water and water came. And they loathed this worthless food. Manna is not worthless food. So they're complaining, and they're just not having an accurate picture of how things are. And then verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who has been bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now Christ is referencing this story, and we're learning here the Israelites had sinned against God, And they then wanted to turn from their sin and they asked for God's mercy. And I believe that a serpent was the most appropriate figure of that deadly and destructive power of sin. The poison of the serpent's bite which circulates through the entire system of its victim is like sin that permeates every part of an unbeliever's heart. From the fatal effects of sin... There is no deliverance except that which God provided. The remedy given by God to judge the sins of His people was by placing their sin on His Son. But how, you would say, could a serpent fitly typify the Holy One of God? This is the very last thought that we would have that somehow there's an association between a serpent on the pole and the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to what A.W. Pink answers this question this way in his commentary. Quote, true, the serpent did not, could not typify him in his essential character and perfect life. The brazen serpent only foreshadowed Christ as he was lifted up The lifting up manifestly pointed to the cross. What was the serpent? It was the reminder and emblem of the curse. It was through the agency of that old serpent, the devil, that our first parents were seduced and brought under the curse of a holy God. And on the cross, the Holy One of God incarnate was made a curse for us. 
We would not dare make such an assertion did not Scripture itself expressly affirm it. You hear what A.W. Pink is saying? Don't, don't try to read too much into this story, like, is Jesus a snake? No, he's not. All right? But at the same time, Jesus came down to earth to be one of us, and he hung on a cross for us that we could be saved. He took our sins on his body on the cross. Every analogy breaks down a little bit if you push it too far, right? But the focus of the analogy, according to Christ, is the emphasis would be on the fact that the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that reference to being lifted up means being placed on the cross, which is why later in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you had lifted up the Son of Man, John 12, 32, and when I am lifted up, From the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So what are we saying? Just as the serpent was lifted up to where the Israelites could look at the serpent on the pole and be healed, in the same way, you and I who've been bitten by sin, we have it circulating through our body, we are totally depraved, we must look to Christ. We must look to Christ and to Him alone to be saved. You must look to Him. Notice there's no effort going on here. This is simply talking about, your next blank, the beautiful Christ who took our place. We're talking here about the beauty of the atonement. We have a substitute, one who took our place. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became our curse. He is our substitute. John 8, verse 3, He was cursed for you and me, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father condemned the sins of men and women in the world on His Son on the cross. And the only way that you could be forgiven of your sin is by looking to Christ, looking to the atonement, looking to the substitute, looking to the one who frees us from our sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the only thing you have to do, my friend, this morning is to look to Christ. Just as Spurgeon was saved, not by doing his good things or going to seminary or becoming a great preacher, he was saved by looking to Christ. When he heard that message on that fateful day, on that snowy night in England, he was saved when the preacher said, look to Christ, all you've got to do is look. And the next blank says it this way, the belief. It's the belief that leads to eternal life. Verse 15 Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Whoever looks to Christ, whoever looks to Him with faith and believes in Him will have eternal life. I'm going to unpack verse 15 a little bit more next week as we really look at verse 16, which is saying a similar thing. But for now, this is how I want to end the sermon this morning. You see it there in your take home. Let me just say this. Uh, This is from A.W. Pink, again, in his commentary. Let me give you six things the Israelites were not asked to do. So we're going to contrast six things that they were not asked to do with the one thing they were asked to do, which was look to Christ. You ready? Number one, they were not told to manufacture some ointment as the means of healing their wounds. Notice nowhere in that passage is Moses say, you got to get some balm, you got to get a little ointment for medicinal reasons, and if you take that and rub that in your snake bite wound, then somehow you'll find healing. That's not what they were told to do. Number two, they were not told to minister to others who were wounded in order to get relief for themselves. So they were not told here to obey basically the golden rule, love others like you want to be loved, and somehow if they love other people and help other people, then somehow that'll, the goodness and the grace of God will come back on them. That's not what's going on here. Number three, they were not told to fight the serpents. Know where they taught to, to walk around the desert and step on the serpent's head and to kill the serpents and to just have an all-out war between you and the serpent. Number four, they were not told to make an offering to the serpent on a pole. They were not told to come with your tithes and to come with your offerings and to bring this into the storehouse. And if you bring it all in to this pole with the snake on it, that somehow you'll be healed. They weren't asked to bring any money, to bring any offering. 
Number five, they were not told to look at Moses. Moses was their mediator. He was their leader. He had brought them out of bondage, but he cannot take them into heaven. He's incapable of bringing them into the promised land. Why? Because Moses is a sinner. He's just like them. That's why he says, don't look to Moses. Look to the pole. Look to what I have done in judging that brazen snake, that serpent on the pole. And then last, number six, they were not told to look at their wounds. They were not told to be overly focused on their sin. Being aware of our sin, of our sin we must be. To be broken about our sin, we must be. To be understanding of the gravity and the gravitas of one sin, one bite from the snake of sin, we must be aware. But you never get better by looking at your hurt and looking at your pain and looking at your guilt and looking at your shame. You must look to Christ. You must look to Him this morning. He is on the cross dying a sacrifice for you, saved off the cross, right? Resurrected and at the right hand of the Father. We, all we have to do is to look to Him today. And so I call you this morning, no matter how weak or how tired or how long you've been suffering from the bite of sin, all I'm saying to you this morning is just look to Christ. Look to Him. Look to Him. Are you weary this morning? Look to Christ. Are you exhausted this morning? Look to Christ. Are you broken this morning about your sin? Look to Christ and be saved. As we read that final quote on the back again, it says, How blessed this was, the brazen serpent was lifted up so that those who were too weak to crawl up to the pole itself and perhaps too far gone to even raise their voices in supplication could nevertheless lift up their eyes in simple faith in God's promise and be healed. For whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life. I call you this morning, look to Christ. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and thank you for the the simplicity of Christ's message and yet we receive the rebuke sometimes maybe of saying only focused on earthly things where Christ says he wants us to also move into the understanding of heavenly things. And God, we acknowledge we're incapable, we're unable by our own effort, our own intellect, our own ability, we have none. And so this morning, God, all we can do is look to Christ. And I pray, God, that you would bring salvation to the lost today by us looking to Christ. I pray for that saved man or woman today that we would be reminded that we must look to Christ. I pray, God, that we would want to move deeper as a church into the heavenly things that apparently Christ has reserved for those who are looking to Him Help us to be blessed today, to be filled up today, to be amazed today, to be taught by the Spirit today, to be washed by the Word today, to be filled with the Spirit today. As we seek to look to Christ, we want to look to Christ for help in our marriages. Look to Christ help to have help with our parenting. To look to Christ to have strength for this day and have hope for tomorrow. May it all come by us simply looking to Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.